Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message will carry us into the second chapter of the book of Esther, where we will see the challenges that face Esther and her older cousin Mordecai by virtue of living in the secularism of Persia's idolatry and godlessness. Thanks for joining us as we seek to learn how to identify those virtues that we need to embrace that reveal God's favor upon those who live in the godlessness of a secular society. Here's a question for you. Which is easier, to do what is right when you're in church or when you're out of church? It's always a little bit easier to act the way you know God wants you to be when you're around God's people, when you know that God's watching us, right? Um, However, sometimes when we get out of the fellowship with God's people or out of those often easy reminders of God's will and direction in our lives, sometimes the hooks of the world sink in again. Sometimes it's a little bit harder to remember or even obey. Sometimes we remember, but it's harder to obey to do what is right. I remember when I was a young man, I was um, talking to my uncle who worked as a police officer. And for, um, for quite a while in his department, he worked as an undercover cop in the narcotics division. And he told me this one story when he made a late night drug bust. And you can imagine the adrenaline running the whole time. And for him to be undercover, he had to, he had to grow his hair out really long and he got an earring. Um, it, was a, it was a magnetic earring, though. I'm not sure my grandma would have allowed him to get a real one. But anyways, he looked the part like a drug dealer. And after locking up all the baddies in handcuffs, he found a stack, a heap, a suitcase of hundreds of thousands of dollars in drug money. And nobody knew that it was there except him. Hmm. What would you be tempted to do in that moment? No one's going to miss it. It's drug money. No one knows. It hasn't been turned in as evidence yet. It's a tough question, isn't it? And I remember asking him, so why didn't you keep it? And he said, because no one would know. He said, I would know. Because I would know. Do you know who else knows? God knows. And you and I, we face a world of temptation and deception. That's what we face every day. As we go from this place, as God's people, we must be those equipped to know that God is going to enable us, is going to enable you to live after the faithfulness of Christ, even in a world of temptation and frustration. We call that world the secular world. It's a place without God. And our study this morning is going to take us into Esther chapter 2, where we are going to try to answer the question, how do we live as followers of God in a secular world? We're going to find there's a few key observations that we're going to be able to make from our passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 2. As we walk through this chapter, we're going to first highlight uh, three uh, key contributions it makes to the story of the, o- the overarching uh, direction for the book. Uh, then I'm going to spend a little bit of time highlighting uh, the nature of secularism in Persia that Mordecai and Esther have to live within. And I'm hoping that as you see it in the text, you are able to identify similar patterns in our world today. And hopefully if you are, 
That's going to prepare you then to see those key observations of how God is going to equip you and I to live within secularism. So, Esther chapter 2. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king. And so he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive uh, with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother, this girl who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was What was happening to her? Before a girl's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem, to the care of Shahazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, 
in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do so. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found out to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. All right, there we go. Chapter 2. As I was working through this this week, I just discovered this is just a tough text. Um, I could preach about beauty treatments for six months, but that doesn't seem like that'll be very fruitful. And in in praying about this, um, I, I believe the Lord showed me a few things that are key to this chapter and why it's so important for us. Chapter 2 sets up a couple of things. First of all, it introduces Mordecai and Esther. They didn't show up in one. Chapter 2 is when we are introduced to these two from this Jewish family. And this is the key point. You need to make sure that you understand in reading this, your Gentile ears do not miss what a Jewish reader would have caught immediately. Mordecai is from a very special family. If you look with me back into the text, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which you might know is the smallest of all the tribes. Not only is he from the smallest of the tribes, but he's from the smallest of the clans, being a son of Kish. Kish was the father of the very first king of Israel. Anyone know the first king's name? What was it? King Saul. That's right. So this means Mordecai is part of a royal family for the Israelites. It'd be equivalent to you and I meeting somebody who was a great, great, great descendant of George Washington. Wouldn't that that be something? You and I culturally would immediately know the familial connection and how there's a little bit more to this story that's going to play out in future chapters of the book of Esther. Not only is uh, King Saul's family mentioned here, but he's also called a son of Shimei. Who is this guy? Now, again, if you had Jewish ears, you would know immediately who this person is. Let me bring it into some cultural context for you. What if I said the name Benedict Arnold? That immediately makes sense to you, right? From an American context. In a Jewish context, similarly, Shimei would have sounded very similar. Shimei, from the family of King Saul, was one of these guys who, when King David was appointed as king, Shimei was on the side of the road chucking rocks at King David and calling down curses on King David. It's 
It's a very interesting story in the book of 1 Samuel. I would encourage you to read it sometime if you wanted. Not only that, but Shimei later on in life was told by King Solomon that he's supposed to make his house in the land of Israel and to stay there. And do you think Shimei stayed there? He did not. Uh, He crossed over the borders in breaking the king's command and was summarily then executed by the command of King Solomon. Guess whose grandson we're talking about now? These guys. We're talking about a one who was attacking verbally and physically by literally throwing dirt and rocks on King David. And not only that, he came from King Saul's family. And King Saul was not the best of guys for the Jewish heritage. You might remember, as you're going to see later on in this story, in fact, next week, this is a little bit of a foretelling, that King Saul was given a command of God to destroy an entire people group called the Amalekites. But rather than do this in obedience to God, Saul decided to take some of the plunder and leave some who were supposed to be have, have been killed by God's command alive. Saul disobeyed God. That's Mordecai's family. That's Esther's family. Esther here, we're given her name. Esther uh, is a Persian name, which means star. Um, Interestingly enough, it's probably most likely a phonetic name connected to the pagan god Ishtar, which was a Mesopotamian god of which the Jews, in reference to this false god, um, called her the queen of the heavens. So Esther's name would have sounded to anybody's ears at the time, though her name means star. You could think of even at a very dark night sky, if you look up into the sky, don't the stars seem like queens in the heavens? That's what Ishtar is represented. Esther being a name that sounds very similar to that. Uh, I think it's no coincidence, uh, not only in God's favor resting upon Esther, but she's the one who's chosen to become the queen. Her name would have already sounded similar to this as a queen of which King Xerxes recognizes. So chapter two introduces our next two main characters. Additionally, chapter two plants the seeds for what will become Mordecai's honor and recognition at the end. So spoiler alert on the book of Esther, um, but things eventually do work out better for Mordecai. Uh, All of that is set up in this chapter when Mordecai overhears the assassination plot and then goes to Queen Esther through an emissary saying, you better go tell King Xerxes his officials are going to murder him. All of that gets set up here and doesn't really play out and come to fruition until chapters 5 and 6. We'll get there eventually. Thirdly, and for this morning, most importantly, chapter 2 provides insight for us into God's favor, even within the evils of secularism. I hope, I hope you notice this. Three, thing, uh, three times repeated in this chapter, Esther won favor. She won the favor of Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. She won favor in verse 15, in the eyes of everybody. And then finally and most consummately, she found favor in the eyes of King Xerxes. Now again, as we studied last week, God's not mentioned here anywhere. But do you know what that word favor would ring into your ears if you read this in Hebrew? It's the word 
same word used to refer to God's loving kindness and God's favor. It's the Hebrew word hesed. That is the favor that Esther receives. If you're paying close attention as a Bible student, you would read along the whole time. I know where that comes from. That is coming from God. God is the one who is, as we read in Proverbs 21, directing the heart of the king. Just like one can channel water anywhere God wants it to go, that's where God wants it to go. The question for you and I is how does Esther's favor before God speak to a way for Esther to live in the evils of a secular society? Because I have bad news for you, church. You live in a secular society. I want to give a definition to this. What, what is what's secularism? What, what does secular mean? Um, there, there's a lot you could, there's a lot I could say on this. A lot we could say. I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. Here's what it means. Secularism is government without God. That is secularism. In a nutshell, the ruling oversight of an institution, any form of government, as long as God is not allowed, we call that secularism. Now here's the problem. If there is no God above the state, the state becomes God. Everybody catch that? If there is no God above the state, the state itself will become God. And the state is made up of sinful men and women. And if there is no God, I'll tell you this. Your own depravity as fallen humans. And you can see this if you find this pattern in any form of secularism. Will always be motivated towards either power and might or pleasure and enjoyment. Without God, you will always move to one of those two destinations. And so I want to give us as quickly as I can um, seven hallmarks of secularism that we can see from this text. In fact, I'm just going to put them all up here on the screen. Um, and uh, just for time, I want to move as quick as I can through them. The first is enculturation, meaning that the, the, uh, the occupants of a society and the government will be focused on whatever is right in front of them. If there is no God to direct your thinking and attention, if there is no God to tell you how to live, you will be obsessed with whatever is the most important thing in front of you. Now, you might remember King Xerxes in chapter 1 was trying to put together an army. He held a great banquet to do that. His banquet was manipulative like a military expo to get as many provinces on board to fight this battle. And you know what? He succeeded. Because if you look with me back in chapter 2, my Bible in the NIV starts with the word later, um, the King James, the New American Standard, the Revised say, after these things. I'm not sure what your Bible has there, but I want you to know, that's about four years. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, King Xerxes has gone to war against the Greeks. The historian Herodotus records the details for us. Um, there was a great battle that took place. Um, the king of Sparta, his name was Leonidas, stood with only a handful, comparatively, of warriors against what was called the million-man army of the Persians. Um, and uh, he held them off for quite a while. The Persian army continued on to Athens, at which the Athenians went out in their ships and pretty much decimated the Persians. 
This war and this battle took place in a way that left King Xerxes, though he was pining for power and control, because that's what you'll have in secularism, it left him defeated. And so we come to our text now, now that he's not pining after war and power, can you tell what it's going to be? It's going to be pleasure now. And so enculturation is a hallmark of secularism that we're only obsessed with what's wet, whatever, right in front of us. Secondly, there's an elevation of human reason and state control. Uh, Rather than turning to God, who did Xerxes turn to in verse 2? It was his personal attendants. Man, what do you guys think we should do? I know. Let's gather up all the girls. Let's pretty them all up. And let's have a Persian beauty pageant. And you pick your favorite one. And you get to sleep with the new one every night. How's that sound? That's, that's what they said. That was, that was the elevation of human reasoning, which is the same thing that happens in any secular culture. Additionally, you will protect power. State control will come into bear for this. And if you look with me back into verse 2, Uh, Verse 3, I'm sorry, it says, Let the king appoint, look at this, commissioners in every province to bring these beautiful girls into the realm. This is a state-sponsored beauty pageant of which the ladies are not going to have any decision to make. Commissioners with the authority of the king are going to be requiring them to come to the capital city of Susa. Thirdly, there's a high value that's given to vanity within secularism. And so you can see very clearly, ladies, just tell, how long does it take you to get ready in the morning? How long? Anyone took six months? Five months? Four four months? Do Do you see the vanity? How long were they requiring these ladies to be trained in, in what amounts to surface level beauty? And don't get me wrong, beauty is beauty. I understand that, but it's, in this case, no deeper than the skin. Twelve months of training. And so you find the same thing in secularism. I wonder if we see this in our world at all. If there's any elevation of those things which amount to nothing. Even state-sponsored things that are completely vain. Fourthly, there's a promotion towards cultural hypersexuality. Uh, I... Probably don't need to say much on this. I imagine we all are able to identify this in our own world. Hopefully you are also able to see this is the case of what's happening. Not only is there a harem of women for the king to choose from, but after he sleeps with them, do you see what happens to them? This was in verses 12 through 14. After he's finished, verse 14 says, in the morning, they're going to return to another part of the harem under the care of a different eunuch, Shaas Gaz, and he is in charge of all the concubines. Now, this might sound a little bit foreign in our world, only because we've gotten better at culturally accepting this. We call this living together. We, we call this playing the field. We call this hookup culture. It's, it's not concubines as it was back then and related to royalty, but it's the same thing today, just rebaked and remixed into another fashion. Secularism will move you towards power or to pleasure. Culturally, you will see a hypersexuality being promoted. Fifthly, favoritism and preferential treatment. Now, you might think that is completely out of place in secularism, and you would be correct. The point of secularism is for equality of all. So there should be no favoritism. 
But if there's no God above the state, then you're definitely going to pander to those whom you can get a little kickback from. Now, I'm not going to throw Esther under the bus. I actually think that receiving God's favor, she's doing as good as she can in secularism to follow God. But you can see this behavior coming from the king's attendants. Look with me in verse 9. It says that the king pleased him. This is Haggai and won his favor. Watch what he does. Immediately, he provides her with special food, special beauty treatments. He takes her, Esther, and her maids to a special part of the kingdom. You can see the same thing happening at the end, too, with the banquet. As the king is now trying to convey his own cultural recognition of Esther by giving gifts to everybody. You, you've never gotten a gift from the government, have you? Anybody? Government's never sent you anything in the mail, has it? To try to convince you that they're right? Give special treatment? Sixthly, you see uh, within secularism discrimination by race which again seems and ought to be out of place in secularism if, if what we want in secularism is inclusivity, meaning there is no God, therefore there is no standard by which we have to adhere to. All people should be the same. The problem is, as soon as you try to divide everybody up to make them the same, you have to divide them by race. Is that happening in our world today? Is that being taught in school to school children today to think of... Uh, themselves according to their skin color or their background. Notice here, Esther has been told by Mordecai, don't tell him your nationality. Don't tell him your background. Because if you did, there will be consequences. Because the secular state is going to discriminate against you by race. We're going to see that next week. Chapter 3, that's kind of the whole story of it. Lastly, manipulative practices uh, throughout this. And you can see all the way back to chapter 1 that there was manipulation um, uh, throughout. Uh, The king here had to be pleased. And so there's going to be a manipulative work to try to make sure that he's pleased. Even the assassination plot has hallmarks of manipulation uh, running as undercurrents. (laughs) in this secular society. Here's the key that I want you to know, and this is important for this morning. God is at work, even in the secular realm. I gotta say that again. God is at work, even in the secular realm. Of those seven hallmarks of secularism, does God allow any of those today? What do you think? Did you see them all? He allows those to happen. Do you know what they're like for you and I? They're like, get into us and they they drag us down why would god allow this why would god allow all those patterns to continue and is there a way that you and i can learn to live within this minefield of secularism so that we don't become defined by it i believe there is i've chosen three concluding observations from this text that i want to share with you for how we can have Virtues that reveal God's favor, even within secularism. So the providence of God, like we can see in Esther's life, hear me loud and clear right now, is also available in yours. The providence of God's favor in Esther's life that we can see is also available for you because God is at work, even in the secular realm. 
And so I'm certain whether it's a neighbor, a family member, or a co-worker, if, if you're not retired, that you have encountered this, that you see secularism in this world. Three ways that we can show God's favor and his providence, even in secularism. The first is this, shrewdness. You can show God's favor by being shrewd in how you live as a Christian within secularism. Now, hopefully this sounds like a little bit of review, doesn't it? Do you remember we had this verse, I think two or three weeks ago, out of Matthew 10, Jesus says these words, I'm sending you out like sheep among the what? Among the wolves. And so he tells his disciples, you need to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Now, I'm not going to repeat that whole message other than to highlight what were the three characteristics that we looked at for snakes. Do you remember? They are always watching They're informed, so they know what's happening, and they are ready. That's what it means to be shrewd. I want you to know that's Mordecai. Mordecai's already informed to know what's going to happen if they find out that you're a Jew. And he's watching. Mordecai's always watching carefully to find those opportunities, and he also is ready. But there's one other characteristic that we can learn about shrewdness from from this text, and it's this. Watch out for the traps that are set. There are traps that are set for God's people by the devil throughout secularism. We looked at seven of them already this morning. Look with me at this verse. This is uh, Jesus before the Pharisees. It says in Matthew 22, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. If I jump down ahead here, it says, tell us then what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax on Caesar or not? Watch Jesus now. Knowing their evil intent, he said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Do you know what Jesus is modeling for us here? Shrewdness. He's careful, watching, informed, and ready, and also avoiding the trap that is set for him, like a hook that would be put in him. He passes right by it. Here's another example from Acts 23 about the Apostle Paul. Just for time, I won't read the whole thing. But there's an assassination plot given by the Jews where they take an oath not to eat until Paul is dead. And Paul hears about it. And when Paul hears about it, it says right here, when the son of Paul's sister heard of the plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He's got something to tell you. Paul didn't say, well, I guess they're trying to kill me. I guess that's the end of it. Oh, well. He was shrewd. He took steps to make sure he would not be caught in the trap that was set. Here's a great instruction from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. This is for an elder. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The first way that you and I can learn how to show God's favor in his providential work in our lives within secularism is to be shrewd. You guys track with me on this? There are traps that are set for you. We looked at seven of them. How foolish would it be to walk out like death into the world, not knowing? Make sure that we avoid those traps by obeying Jesus and being as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Secondly, um, oh, by the way, I'm not sure. Did I I show you from the text where that comes up in this passage? Uh, This is Mordecai when he says to Esther in verse 10, uh, he's, he has forbidden her to tell of 
Esther's background. He knows that that's going to be a trap. In fact, if you didn't catch it the first time, look with me in verse 20. Verse 20 says, Esther had kept her, uh, kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do so. There were other dangers that she was going to face. One that she could avoid was having anyone in the royal family find out that she was a Jew. That was something that was going to come into play later. And so Mordecai, in his shrewdness, models for you and I one of the key ways we can show God's favor within secularism. Secondly is this. It's the virtue of family. Again, I want you to look at Mordecai. He's continually watching over Esther as his daughter. Back in verse 7, it says, Mordecai had taken her into his home as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. After he told her not to reveal who she was, look with me in verse 11. What does Mordecai do? Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. If that's not enough, look what verse 19 and 21. Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Verse 20, Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Why is he sitting at the king's gate? Because he is watching over Esther because they are of the same family. I can't tell you how important it is for you to help one another. I can't tell you how critical it is for the church to help point out the traps that exist. Because really, they're also going to fester from within us. This is why we need one another as family. Watch what James says to the church. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Anyone guilty of that here? Anybody? Any honest Christians in church today feel that in you? This is why you need one another. This is why James ends his letter with these words. Watch this, my brothers and sisters. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. How is James addressing them in this instance? As what? As a family. As a family. Church, I want you to know that as we break from here, you're going to go back into secularism. Now, I remember when I played football in high school, we would all huddle together and make a plan. You guys see it, right? The huddle. All right. Break, right, left, 99, 24, dive. On three. What? (laughs) Then what's everybody do? Everybody breaks from that huddle and then they go to work. That's the exact same thing we're doing right now. This is the huddle. That's what this is. This is where we're all getting on the same page for our strategy. Our strategy can be found in serving God in the variety of ways that he's given us opportunity. But then we say, ready, break. And we go from this place. And just like in a football team who's watching for one another, that's exactly what you need to do for one another. All right, lastly and thirdly, what's the last virtue? It's integrity. How do you show God's favor while living in secularism? Don't get caught in the trap. You need to do what's right, even if no one's watching. And that's exactly what Mordecai does. Mordecai, at the end of chapter 2, he hears about the assassination plot and takes a risk to go and tell the queen, you need to let the king know that this is what's happening. Now, as soon as you speak up, he knows what's going to happen. They're going to open an investigation. How many of you be excited to be investigated? Anybody? Anybody fired up about that prospect? Don't think so. 
but Mordecai knows, nevertheless, I can't keep my mouth shut. It's the right thing to do. And so what does he do? He goes and he speaks up about this plot. So I want to give you three ways that you and I can take from this today. Applications of living as Christians, as God-fearers, those who know Jesus Christ and honor him in the secular world. The first is this. I want you to know you are not your past. You are not your past. I'm not sure who needs to hear that this morning. The Lord just really put on my heart someone needs to hear that today. Because Mordecai went into this thing, the son of Shimei, great-great-grandson of King Saul. Those guys really buggered it up for the family. right? Royalty had them executed. And now he's living in Susa. <laughs> now he's living in Persia. How easy would it have been for Mordecai to be like, you know, I give up. I can't do this anymore. It's who I am. Right? That's, that's who I was made to be. Look at my parents. Look at the parents before them. This is just what we do. Why should I even try? Why should I even go on? But he is not his past. I do have one really important caveat for this observation. This is only true if you know Jesus. For those who have placed your confidence for your eternal soul... In Jesus Christ, you are not your past. In fact, Sam has already shared with our children this morning. Well, like what kind of insect again, Sam, was that? A butterfly. Butterfly is this verse that you shared, right? If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new has come. When's the last time you saw a butterfly climbing back into a cocoon? What does the butterfly do? Soars. It flies. All of those hooks that kept it down are gone because the old is gone and the new has come. This is a great one from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sounds like bad news. It is if you're a wrongdoer. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. That's what some of you were. That's not what I am anymore. That's what, that's what I used to be. But now that I'm in Christ, I am a new creature. I was washed. I was sanctified. I was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So I want you to know this morning, what's the, where do we start with this? When you leave this place and you go back into secularism, remember, you are not your past. Secondly, you need to watch over each other. You need to make an effort to watch out for one another. I had a brother in this church call me this week because he just noticed, hey, you seem like you're a little bit off. Is, is everything okay? Man, I can't tell you how that just blessed my heart. To know that I don't have to face the struggles of a secular world and all of its pressures all alone by myself. I've, I've, got, I've got brothers. I, I've got sisters. And what does a family do? Remember, the virtue of God's favor is seen by recognizing the family of God. Well, it's a pretty sad family that doesn't watch out for one another, isn't it? That's not how we're supposed to be. 
In fact, look at some of these passages from Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves so that you, because you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This from Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Who do you think King Xerxes thought was the best? Probably himself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This from Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I just want you to know, every one of these attributes can only be expressed in relationship. You, you cannot express compassion without being compassionate to somebody. You can't express kindness without being kind to somebody. It says, bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against somebody, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Church, you need to watch over one another. Now, I just want to give a little word of, word of warning in this. Uh, when I played football, we, we called out to one another where problems were coming from. We tried to communicate. You see this like on a basketball team as well. When I coached basketball, the very best thing I could get my players to do is communicate to one another, talk to one another, and to help one another. Know when there's a pick, know when there's a screen, know when someone's open, know when somebody's being left behind. And the whole team's going to be better for that. But you know what you're not supposed to act like? You're not supposed to act like the ref. Church, don't act like a ref. Don't think that being part of the family means that you stand on the sidelines with the whistle watching. You know anybody like that? Are you a little bit like that? Right? This, this is our human nature. It's far easier rather than be engaged in the game to act as those who just want to call out the faults of one another. Jesus tells us about this. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye while you ignore the stick in your own eye? So... Watch out for one another while you're engaged in the game, on the same team. The refs don't win. Nobody likes the refs, right? They lose every game. (laughs) All right. Thirdly, how do we reveal God's favor in a secular world? You need to do whatever is right. You need to do whatever is right. Mordecai here takes the risk and does what is right. Esther doesn't even manipulate the king. Look with me back in verse 15. It says, when the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai adopted, the daughter of his son Abihel, to go to the king. Watch this. She asked for nothing. She asked for nothing. The, the way it worked with the king is that these women, after 12 months of beauty treatments, do you know what they would do? They'd take with them whatever they thought the king would like the best so that they could manipulate the king. That does not, that's not the right way of doing it. Esther says, I'm not going to play that game. She only does what she's told. And she does whatever's right. I, I want to just undergird this point with a couple of scriptures from 2 Thessalonians 3. But you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing what is right. 1 Peter 2.1, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, which is eventually what will happen to the Jews in Susa, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. And lastly, 1 Peter 4. This is going to be an important one for us to end on this morning. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I want you to know this is foreshadowing in the story of Esther. This is exactly what's going to happen in chapter 4. As you go from this place, listen team, hands in, ready? Let's get the huddle. We're going to go out there, we're going to dominate. We're, we're, we're going to show them love. We're going to show them Jesus Christ. We're going, to, we're going to watch over one another. We're going to do the best that we can going from height to height to higher ground, focusing on the return of our Savior. Amen? Amen. All right, ready? Great. I was pathetic. All right. Let's go. Thank you.